So, <clears throat> I've been offered a series of questions here, written down. Um, as you well know, I've been doing a lot of in- interviews and answering uh, lots of questions. Um, and it's been fruitful, I hope. And I try to generally, you know, with respect to the assembly, you know, as to what would actually be most helpful for your uh, practice, your strengthening, your your, your welfare, really. Um, and of course, there are many things that one can talk about or interesting or about myself which may be of some interest I don't feel always so inclined to talk about it not because I'm particularly bashful or embarrassed it just seems a bit of a waste of time really <laughs> you know why I became a monk and why did you become a lay person <laughs> it's just like <laughs> it's just you know you <laughs> it's like you're living along and you kind of Try to get where you can to to, to feel better. <laughs> That's generally what we do, isn't it? <laughs> and some things arise, kind of like you fall in love with someone. It's just what happens, and uh, you find something that seems light up, and then you well, go that way, and you know, see what happens. Mm. Mm. I didn't imagine it would I would be with it for so long, um, but. Uh, to me, it offered a, for where I was at, it offered a good chance to cultivate, develop what I needed to develop. It provided some reasonable foundations for my material needs. Um, offered teachings, uh, good, so yeah. So naturally, you know, one operates out of self-interest, doesn't one? Uh, uh, particularly, I think when I came to to Britain. Then that's kind of a little bit more took it to another level because really when I when I started the training in Thailand, you know you just go to this, you're in some foreign country or barely spoke any of the, any of the language at all, and you think okay this will be an interesting thing to do you know it's a group of people who've got lots of people they've got something together um, there's thousands of these monks and nuns and lay people support system you they let you in so you go into it and then whatever they're doing you try to follow along it's their deal so you follow along you join in there they're looking after you so you follow their their things and um but you're not you know i mean they're very welcoming and certainly very respectful but it's really when i came to england that i recognized uh, I meant something. Yeah. Whereas when I was in Thailand, you think, oh, this is what they do to monks, you know. They come out off our arms. It was still very moving, very moving. But yet somehow, because it was a, f- a foreign country, it was like, sort of like, it's like a strange, you know, strange piece of theatre. Uh, uh, you were kind of putting on these things you, you, to be in the show, as it were. Not to want to be too flippant, but when you came to England, then you, you realised, hey, these people also, 
are getting something out of me just being around. And, you know, the fact that I don't think they were especially deluded, because it wasn't me personally, it was just a sense of what one was more or less inducted into in terms of holding a quality of peacefulness, uh, honesty, restraint, simplicity, commitment. And uh, I think, you know, something, something you could feel a sense of trust with in life, in a situation where there's not really very much, you know, that you could really feel a sense of trust and somebody's actually, people who are trying to, at least trying to realize something deeper and, and more meaningful than just, a, you know, job or singing some songs in a church or something without really much depth to it. So that was, that really, you know, one becomes very much what, both what one aspires to it personally and also what people make of you, don't they? That's what forms you. Yeah. And then the feeling that if one could just hold this, it would be something that would I could do, which I could do. Yeah. And, um, So someone here is asking about how do I um, reconcile or how do I reconcile the status of women in Orthodox Buddhism including in your own community of the Ajahn Chah lineage not allowing bhikkhunis all women are junior to men etc. Well as I said when I entered that I didn't know anything about anything really a place to stay and uh, uh, there, were, there were monks there were nuns they certainly were nuns uh, they weren't they were shaven head they just wore white the monks wore brown everybody seemed to be doing things chanting and working and meditating and stuff so that, I think this is their scene this is the way they do it and they all seem pretty much in it you know and uh, quite keen and quite settled and seemed to be able to relate to each other. They talked and they worked together and stuff. So I never really, never really sort of struck my mind. Um, and I had plenty of other things that were striking my mind <laughs> at the time. <laughs> so I didn't, I didn't really make anything of it or notice it even that much. And then when I came to live in, 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 in Britain, there was a much smaller thing and I got to learn more about the junior su- senior. So I was junior, and uh, I think about three or four monks were senior to me, and I had one or two junior to me, which meant we just lined up for the meal in a certain place. There was only, what, six of us anyway. So, and then we all just did things together, you know. And Ajahn Samadhi was clearly the teacher. He was the boss, he could say, put it crudely, but he was the teacher who followed his instructions. And one felt, yeah, he he knows what he's talking about. He's got it together, and um, he he's more experienced. So you follow, and you're, you're junior, and he's senior, and so it didn't seem to be that uh, problematic, really. Um, so then there weren't any 
uh, women around. It was only they just brought three or four monks over from Thailand. You know, they just came from Thailand to set up something, and, and that's that's all have been invited. Just send us two or three. And that's so Ajahn Chah sent, you know, a few few of these people. Two of them didn't even know they were going. They just went. They just gone back to to America to visit their family, and they were going back to Thailand. They got a message: don't go to Thailand, go to England instead. So they were, you know, sort of, okay. Just they'd <laughs> never been. Didn't want to go to England. Never been to England. Got stuck in this house in London when they were imagining they're going back to Thailand. So, so it was a funny crew, <laughs> and then we had some younger people. Uh, like teenage boy was a summon era, uh, and, and so there we were. We just jogged along doing what we had to do. So then, some women got interested in being part of the community, and and Ajahn Chah said, "Yeah, it can happen. They can do that." So Ajahn, Ajahn Sumedha always thought that what Ajahn Chah um, said or did, you know, he'd, he'd always ask him for guidance because he was his teacher. So, okay, so Ajahn Chah says, yeah, you, you can do this. You can get these women can be part of your community. They can practice and train and live with you. Um, of course, there's all the rules of separation, celibacy and stuff, uh, which becomes quite a topic. Um, I mean, we're young people. Um, so there was that. And then, well, how do they do that? Well, they have to shave their heads and wear white. Okay. So at first they weren't too keen even in shaving heads because it was felt like this might be too, too weird for people in Britain, you know, because a woman with a shaven head is like, why is that? So they didn't shave their heads at first, they just cut it very, very short uh, because they're quite kind of sensitive to not to uh, being accepted by the local society. So they did that. And then again, they were junior. They just turned up, and so there were other men in white as well. So there was the people in white with the eight preceptors, and there was us lot. We all sort of worked together, and there was junior, senior, but that was the deal for everybody. So it it never really made that much of 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 a thing. Time went by, and uh, after a while. Some of some of the the, the the nuns said, "Well, we'd like to, you know, step up a bit to uh, take on more precepts because the eight precept could handle money." So Ajahn Sumedho to think about it. So um, better go and check in with the people in Thailand because you know that's that's my there's they have the authority. And he found some monks who said, "Yeah, you could do that." He, cho- he chose the ones who'd say yes. <laughs> so he felt enough authority to go back and he gave them the, the ten precepts. You know. And then I began to recognize, hey, this thing is, is not just all up to him. And, uh, and gradually one began to be kind of sketch in the way this whole Sangha thing operated. Uh, was, well, it's Thai Sangha. Was Thai Sangha has got a, a kind of a Sangha council with these selected administrative monks on it who have to be se- specially selected, they have to pass examinations, and they get this 
there's some sort of title, and they're they're the people who like Congress, you know. Um, so they 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 operate the thing, and they're actually uh, supervised by the government because the government Thai state is bound together by the king, the nation, and the sangha. So they're part of the what it is to be Thai is to have this thing. It's like it's a moral underpinning of the society. So it's very conservative and it's there to preserve the moral, ethical, cultural thing of Thailand, which they're quite pleased with because they were the only people who managed to not get crushed by the British and French who surrounded their country, who carved up almost the rest of the world <laughs> and they managed to hold their own. So they thought, you know, we're Thais, we're, we've got our stuff together. So there's a certain, you know, like most nations, a certain national pride. And they weren't about to be told what to do by by Westerners, that's for sure, particularly with their Sangha. So Agnes may always go back and uh, uh, ask permission. Uh, and you mean, oh, that's how it works. You have to ask permission from the Thai elders before you do things. Okay. Again, it didn't seem that much of a big thing. Uh, but then, of course, there's... Then I was asked to then be in charge of, of training these, these women. So then it suddenly, you know, comes much more full beam. And, uh, well, as you know, you know, well, perhaps you don't know, <laughs> but it means uh, really I had to kind of look after them and teach and train and support and listen and counsel and guide and try to out of this very, you know, quite simple 10 precept form, evolve something that's more fully evolved so they could essentially create their own, you know, female community. So they weren't always having to ask the monks for everything. They could create their own thing. So I created a whole lot of train rules conventions. And so I did that for uh, seven years. And uh, I only kind of stopped because the nuns said, we think we've got it together, thank you, you know, so, okay. <laughs> so then that kind of came along, and then sort of a few years later, this thing, bikuni thing started wafting in, because when I looked in the, all the training thing, rules, it, you know, there it was, bikuni vinia, bikuni vinia, bikuni vinia, and he looked in, because I had to study it all to, to really get a sense of what would be helpful for these women. So, and it's got, you know, so ba- basically down in the books, which, you know, we don't, we can never prove anything's exactly what the Buddha said, but we have to go on that. And it's got clearly, you know, all bhikkhunis are jun- junior to all bhikkhus. You know, okay, even if she's been 100 years or something. So you think, well, it's all laid down now. We can, we can question that document, but really if you've got when you've got something 2,000 years and say half a million monks and nuns plus you know maybe uh, 400 million lay people you know you don't really feel you're going to stand up and start saying where it's going to be against that kind of um, authority so okay well this is what I can do and um, so that's my personal thing, was to just try to support uh, in, a, in a paradigm that 
I didn't, you know, clearly I didn't set up. I only just began to understand. And as far as I could see, you know, the Buddha himself or some authority had laid it down that way. Okay, so what do I do about Maybe I don't. Um, and if anybody do something about it, then these Thai elders would. But they didn't. Um, somewhat later than that, I actually went to, there was a bhikkhuni conference in Hamburg with the Dalai Lama had asked to, to set this thing up. And so these, there was this, and they'd invited lots and lots of scholars and bhikkhus and bhikshunis who are Mahayana and various authorities and Tibetans to all gather together for this symposium. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had every gave me speeches and I, mean, listen, I went along to this thing, I was listening to it all and everything. Oh yeah, mm. oh yeah, so, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah. Oh yeah, right. And they were all pretty much coming, chiming in with, we could do this, you know, we could create uh, bhikkhuni, because the Tibetans didn't have it either. Uh, we, it's only the Chinese and the Hong Kong, Taiwanese thing still was there. And there were some reasons for that which I want to go into. Um, so then they all presented their papers and for four or five days. And, the, and so you listen to all this stuff and it sounded, yeah, pretty good. And somewhere in the middle of it, the you know, funny thing happened is it, there were some Tibetan nuns there who were not bhikkhunis they were the kind of equivalent you see of Mechis and they were sitting there and they and the, everyone around was all these German professors and so forth and then these Tibetan big women said they couldn't they were trying to fathom out what was going on so they were actually getting it translated and they said they got upset said, we don't want to be bhikkhunis we're happy you know we're Tibetans we don't want these westerners telling us what to do said, oh god another thing so <laughs> erupted because we got our scene you know we, we've been doing this we're all right and, and how many different kind of qualities are involved with this uh, uh, and then eventually they presented it all to the Dalai Lama and he listened to it all and it all sounded pretty much like well this is yeah you can do this Dalai Lama can do it and he said oh well, thank you very much Mm, if I was Buddha, I would definitely, I can, I would definitely allow this. But I'm not Buddha. Um, um, I don't have the power to do this. The jaws dropped, including mine. Oh, wow. He said, have to have, entire Sangha has to agree. Oh. So that was 2007. So that was a, quite quite disturbing in some ways. So I felt myself there was possible ways in which if scholars had looked at certain aspects of the text you could work at some Sangha to make this thing happen. It seemed quite possible to me in my estimation. But um, recognizing there's actually several layers of in this this thing. One is the vinyl layer, which I think, well, personally, and I'm not really an expert on this, that you can find ways in which you could, you know, do that. And I think that seems good enough to me. <laughs> uh, um, but still, they're going to be junior. And so, 
But then the, on t- what I've noticed and begun to recognize over time is that you have a monastic lineage thing which has been going on thousands of years which actually has managed to preserve itself against the enormous amount of invasions, colonials, imperialists, famines, wars and it's thing it's just survived and managed to, to keep itself together. So it's a, and it's supported by you know, a kind of culture. And, you know, and that culture, in Thailand, you've got sort of 800 years of that, and they've never, the bhikkhunis never arrived there. So they've always had their thing. They've never had bhikkhunis. So, and there's a sense in which this is, this is not really about Nibbana. This is about the way we hold our tribe. Mm-hmm. And Thailand has got a lot of Brahmanism in it, Brahminical culture, which is very male-female polarized. You know, Brahminical. It's a male. F- the Brahmin is always a male priest, mm-hmm. and it's their thing, as far as Thailand goes. Mm-hmm. There's a weight there. And you go to, and, and the, the kind of other thing that one is kind of like I recognize against somewhat, you go to the monasteries, and if you've ever been to Thai monastery, you recognize the congregation is 80% at least women. At least. And they're supporting this thing. Mm hmm. Okay, I don't know. Um, so, one sort of, as far as Thailand goes, you just back off, you know. Um, as far as the West goes, of course, it's a completely different ball game. You don't have 800 years of yada yada yada. You don't have something that's holding the society in the, together. You don't have some that's cultural investment in it. You could actually probably just look at straight at the book and think, right, Okay, well, it looks like if we do this kind of statement announcement, brings the people together, we can do it. I think you can. But still, at the end of the, d- if you keep, you know, if you look in the vineyard, you still have that junior-senior thing, which affects all of us. And then, essentially, it's what one makes of it. Now, just to bear in mind, there's nothing specific, nothing peculiar about the Ajahn Chah lineage, which has no ecclesiastical authority whatsoever. You know, like if you've got uh, all the what they call the Mahasara Samakon, which is the Sangha Council, not one of the Ajahn Chah monks is on that. <laughs> yeah, they've got no power whatsoever. So they just have to go along with what the rest of the nation state thing does. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it's, some, it's been unfortunate so the, the way they got picked out. Because they don't particularly have an issue with it in the West. You know, we've had uh, senior monks come over and see bhikkhunis and find it's your culture, is what they said. It's your thing. So they haven't got some anti-bhikkhuni thing. It's just we don't do it in Thailand. But America is different. It's your thing. Um, so, you know, I think that's... So personally, how do I, how do I sit with it? Well, you know, I, not to, to be simplistic, I just feel that I 
try to live respectfully with everyone and um, with a sense of respect and goodwill to everyone. Uh, Naturally, for women who have gone forth, it's perhaps a little deeper in some ways. I won't say that, you know, I respect everyone, but also for women who have gone forth, I have a sense of, hey, these are my sisters in some respect, so I want to make sure they're okay. Um, That's what I can do. And like many things, yeah, it's not entirely comfortable, but you know, if I want to be uncomfortable, there's plenty of other things I can be un- very uncomfortable about. <laughs> you, you know. So that's, honestly, that's about all I can say in it right now. <coughs> so here we have a few more of this sort of level of discourse someone burdened by the obligation to care for the parent I want to act with a sense of responsibility but not obligation someone also how do I, I have a caring relationship with my partner but sometimes I feel mistrust arise in my heart how do I handle the mistrust and doubts about our future so that is snagging in the relational field you know uh, they may sound like different topics to you, and they certainly there are differences in them, but this snagging of how do I, what's my relationship with other people, um, and people who I feel, you know, they're not just any old person, they're people who have got some sense of uh, a bond to, you know, parent and partner. And yet, clearly, in any relationship, there's going to be snagging of some kind. Certainly with a partner, you know, not that I've really had a huge amount of experience in that level, but I had had enough experience to recognise the snagging occurs. (laughs) 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 And then, uh, you know, how much is it how big how big is the proportion of snag <laughs> to smooth <laughs> so generally if there's a plenty a good enough smooth then the snag you can kind of work out or or put up with or say okay you know that's the nature of of uh, of our of experience and we just got to keep working with these as they arise and if you've got enough uh, feeling of of empathy and love and sharing wishing to be together you you work with it but it's going to be snag, you know, but you keep working with it and it changes you and you, you know, you both change in it. And if it's really, if your relationship's got enough good stuff in it, you're prepared to put in the effort and, and work with it and, you know, let go a bit more of, of one's own end on things. You know, the big thing about relationship surely is it turns the me into the we, it turns the letter upside down and then you, that's not a small thing to do because <laughs> you're really you know when you recognize these aren't just a couple of bodies these are two acquisition fields fields of acquisition coming like <laughs> two continents coming in tectonic <laughs> so there's going to be a little bit of <laughs> stuff going on 
Now with a parent obligation, I think it's, uh, yeah, that's also the case, responsibility obligation. You know, they had you. And that must have been quite a big, big, big responsibility and obligation. But, uh, you know, they chose to have you. <laughs> uh, and then you kind of work with that feeling of, uh, of you know, responsibility, obligation. Can you do, can you, how much can you feel you can sacrifice of yourself? And that's the, one of the big questions in relationship, isn't it? You know, how much can you sacrifice of yourself? Uh, hmm? If you can, you know, and how much can you see, can you feel sacrificing myself is actually, you know, it, it's worthwhile. Uh, it's good. It's not so comfortable, but it, it's, it's worthwhile. And so you try to look at these things from this, from this um, um, perspective. Can, can this is something I can develop some parami in? Yeah. Um, or is it just so frustrating and so difficult and so shutting me down that I really can't work with it, you know? Uh, but certainly if the parent, for example, is aging or in bad state, then I think one feels there is a, you know, one somehow feels there is almost like um, a genetic duty or responsibility to do what one can to, to support and look after and bet you know and, and mm, take the weight or, or at least try to find a way in which that, that can be they can be properly attended to and yeah, so obligation, responsibility, weight, okay, but then consider it perhaps as it's an opportunity for patience, for strength, for resolution, to, to get gut level meta, not sugary meta, but the meta of, you know, sustained um, commitment and um, self-relinquishment. Mm. That's the case. Then you've got you can you can view it in another way. If you really can't work with it, or it's not needed, or it's not possible, then I think you should at least look at ways in which this person's welfare can be reasonably attended to. Okay, so. Some other stuff. How can you say more about how to strengthen and reify the parami? Well, the strengthening aspect of all the parami is the aditana resolution. So that's the one that holds it. So that's the kind of parami that amplifies and strengthens any of the others. Clearly, we quite like, you know, metta and so on. It's beautiful but then to sustain it and hold it <laughs> through the push of, uh, of, of things that uh, take it away from us. Mm. So this one particularly, I don't think it's, it's, not, it's not a small thing, is it? There are some people one can easily feel some intense dislike around, 
people who do evil, harm, uh, are not honest, are not reliable, uh, you know, this, that and the other, and to not let one's heart get saturated with bitterness, but to say this is improper, unsuitable, and I do not wish them harm. And also the other thing to just deepening one's uh, metta is towards this being. And this is uh, very necessary because if you, this is to absolutely necessary. And many people carry this quality of ill will. It appears as inadequacy, not good enough, uh, no, you know, pathetic, idiot, unworthy, excluded. And those forces have to be constantly resisted and pushed against uh, and, and held back. If we can't stop them occurring, at least try to check the belief in them and the behaviours that, that you know, etch them in. So in this way, uh, you know, any parami starts off as a, a nice aspiration. Then you have to use determination to resolve it. And then you're going to meet all the forces that try to push that away from you. All the things that want to make you impatient. I'll be patient for maybe two minutes. No, okay, it's not five minutes. No, ten minutes. No, an hour. No, a day. No, a year. No, five years. No, a lifetime. No, not enough. (laughs) (laughs) Patience until there's no more time boundaries left. That's what. (laughs) That's it. That's it. There you got it. (laughs) With all of it. Means don't lose one's faith despite it all. You know, your act of defiance is not is to not go under and to bear with it. So then I mean if you want to make more of it then you keep almost re- reciting the refrains. If you pick up one or two items of the parami you really want to focus in on and then you can do things like make an image of it. This is what shrines and rituals are about. You know, you, you, you pick up something where you already feel there is a glow in your heart, a strength and a keenness, a glow in your heart. Yeah, this is meaningful. This is beautiful. This is strong. This is what I value deeply. And you look in your life and you think, what do I value deeply? If you've got one or two of those, you hold it, and you contemplate it and you take it in and it begins to shine and fill you. And then you want to make some kind of image out of it. And you can use a word with that, a verbal image, like a word or a sound or a chant or a prayer. And you can make a physical image, like a, something you can fashion or paint or just flowers or sticks or something. And you can make a shrine and you want to put that thing up there and you want to look at it every day and you want to offer things to it and you want to bow at it and you say this then you're establishing a, a, f- a real participating field with that quality this is how you generate fields you, you generate a meaningful field but not just by thought but by really placing something going to it enacting in it chanting it praying to it you know and these things are not 
why people do this is because it's not just, you know, sort of superstition. Because it, it when it, you put it there and you keep activating it, potentizing it by your presence and by your actions, it starts to pay off, it starts to hold you. Yeah. And the next time you're about to lose it, you, you remember that. You remember that. Come back. You know. You remember that, and you look to that, and you've char- you've thought about that every day. And next next time you're about to lose that quality, it brings you back. Yeah. This Aditana principle is something I've used a lot, and uh, it's powerful. Because once you've made the statement, and you can, if you want to make a resolution, you say that what you resolve, and you listen. If something says, that's a good idea, that's not enough. You say it again, I resolve this. Something says, yeah, that's interesting, no, that's not good enough. <laughs> and you say it again, until something in your heart goes, mm. and you got it. And then you maybe fold your arms, or chant, or oh, that's locked it. <laughs> it's not just a good idea that my thought will then change its mind and say it's not a good idea. It goes beyond that. And you've made a, planted something in the field you don't enter the field just by a little thought you've got to plant it there and then you, you've made that and then at that depth it holds you it's very it's in, it's very powerful we had a uh, a, a woman <coughs> elderly woman who was psychologically very afflicted. She was um, very devoted and she'd given more or less whatever she had, she'd made, given it to our little community and she was in her 70s or so and she was, well, schizophrenic actually. So extremely devout but she'd have these schizophrenic episodes where she'd really lose it and she'd be on the phone and phoning up uh, to talk to Ajahn Samedo and just to sort of talk to her and, you know, get her back again um, somewhere. And one of her uh, 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 things was she had this sense where she, she felt that, that, you know, we could kind of enter her body, go into her body and sort of do things or something or healing something. So, and she said, I don't mind it, you know, when the senior monks come in there, but... When the Anagarikas come in, they're, they're, they're a bit rough, you know, and I've got this one stuck in my liver. <laughs> <laughs> so we'd have to sort of go and phone and say, get the Anagarika out of her liver. <laughs> Which one? It, we say, I don't mind, but they're a bit, you know, they want to try, but it's a bit sort of rough-handed, and I like something a bit eat. I don't mind if, if Ajahn Samedo gets in my gallbladder, but... You know, so okay, sister. Well, and then eventually the feeling was this lady is really will take her in. So as Ajahn Sumedho's compassion, he decided he'd invite her in and make her into eight precept nun, and she could live in the monastery, and the other nuns would um, try to support her. She had a tremendous faith in the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. Tremendous faith in it. Yeah. She'd been very devout, and she'd have these cr- really crazy episodes. So you know, 
middle of the night and nuns would be fast asleep and she'd come into somebody's room with a flashlight. Get me to the senior monk. There's a, somebody stuck in my, my, my liver. <laughs> and then it's like two o'clock in the morning. Oh, yeah. You know. <laughs> so, <laughs> so they'd say, oh, wake up. Say, Sister, take the refuges and precepts immediately. And she went, no, she calmed down. You know, as soon as she, so she made this, clearly she got this tremendous aditana around the refuges and precepts. So they'd say, immediately, sister, take the refuges and precepts right now. And she I'll take the refuges and put them. And she came down. <laughs> you know? And it was like, wow. You know the the power of that because he had that faith indriya and the aditana on it was such it, it penetrated this crazy level of her mind into something which was much more polarizing, you know. And so th- there's there's power there. Hmm? So sometimes when I have these crazy things, when I've got people stuck inside me or I'm annoyed with, Ajahn Sajito, take the refuge immediately. <laughs> Sort of come out of it. <laughs> Do you ever get those things? <laughs> so then, uh, but certainly these these are these are things to if you you know if you if it means something. I'm really. It does work. It does work. You know, on a level, it's it's difficult to explain rationally because the mind is not just rational, is it? Strong psychic, strong psychological potencies. When you make aditana, you know they go in there. It can be because you make a resolution with another person, or you know a sign that gives you faith and strength. And then you, if you get that sign, that's fantastic. Now make the most of it. Really get it established strongly, and don't think about time. <laughs> Yeah, because um, as this person saying, is it a part of one's field that survives death? Um, well, it depends. If you don't clear it, it goes on. So, like all of it survives death, <laughs> apart from the out- outer periphery. You know, the physical thing the appearances and the personality, but the, the bedrock, uh, you know, if, if, if the Buddhist perspective on it is that it, these, these potencies, these potentials, these, you know, formative tendencies just keep rolling on. And uh, so, but the, if you've stilled and quietened and released a few, then they don't survive. If, they, if you haven't, then they, they roll on. So it's a sense to clear what you can. And of course, the, um, this may sound like an enormous job. Um, uh, but, you know, the but is that if you can clear enough to be able to get off the ground <laughs> and not identify <laughs> with any of it, that's the shortcut. So this may only take 100 lifetimes, you know. <laughs> 
or less even, even in its very life, as the Buddha says, if you can get it good enough so that you can contemplate that without being dragged into it, then you've cut the link to, the f- to that field, to those acquisitions. Acquisitions have been relinquished. You've cut the link to them. Now the link is this, what's called uh, upadana, or clinging, which is not just something we choose to do, it's like a, almost like a magnetic force. You, something sticks, it's still got potency for you. You're still caught with that perception. You're still reactive in that area. This still gets you shrinking. This still gets you rushing out. This still gets disturbs you. And those are the ones you want to know about. Uh, much of stuff, you know, is just flowing by, but it's some pieces which really get you. Uh, and those are the pieces you've got to aim for. You know, don't try to understand all of Buddhism. It's a waste of time. <laughs> it's, it's a sidetrack. What you understand is what gets you. Uh, what gets you, what bothers you, what grips you. And then can those pieces of the landscape that do that, can you really rally your energies around any of those, your parami, your mindfulness, your everything you've got around those and begin to drain the power of that? And you can. You know, and you can drain it a bit and a bit more, and a bit more, till it gets you less, and less intensely, and you come out of it more easily, and you can drain it a bit more, till it's just there, and you can drain it till it's just, there it is, but I'm not act, you know, it doesn't get me. And then you've lifted, and that bit's not going to go on. So, we don't really have to change the field utterly, we just change our relationship to it. To, to the acquisition field because the more that we attune to the, our Dhamma field that's giving us support the less we f- are kind of magnetically attracted to the acquisition field to the field of acquisitions remember Chitta seeks orientation yeah. and if, if it, so we, can it orient, orient to the Dhamma field rather than the acquisitions two in some ways are in the same place but can you see through your acquisitions to the dumber potentials there and that's essentially what you're looking to do we're still going to have our personalities our particular you know favoring and dis but we don't not stuck in them you can move you can lift from that that's the big thing and in this respect, what's brought up here, stream entry, personality view, once returner. And so these things. And um, so I'm sure most of you are aware that in one of the maps of awakening, there's a, a map that presents awakening in terms of the severing of ten fetters. And the first three fetters are... Uh, Sakaya Ditti, which generally translates as personality view. And uh, another one is uh, doubt or wavering, uncertainty. And there's also another one, um, 
attachment to what's tra- loosely translated as rites and rituals, but it really means something like systems and customs. It's anything we do with a, with a sense of automatic, and we do because it gives us security. You know, it gives us orientation. You know, so it could be, you know, our daily rituals. We get up at this time. Uh, we have these behaviours that we're familiar with, and so they they and, and they, they shape us, you know, systems and customs. And naturally, human life is always organised in terms of certain social customs and certain social systems that we operate within. You know. Uh, that people feel, you know, that that's the way we operate. Different from Americans than it is for Indians, for example. And if you, if you travel around, you generally got to do some, uh-oh, uh-oh, right, okay, shift gear, because they do it like this here. And so we understand this is not, that what we're living with is a particular, one particular set of systems and customs in this culture. Yeah, it's not an ultimate truth. Um, but the attachment to it is when this is right and I can't operate without it and I feel totally weird without it and I need it to give me a sense of who I am. So this is when it's we're, uh, the clinging to it. The clinging to it is always that the self starts to constellate uh, around um, a system and a custom to make it feel secure. And what is it that's being made feel secure is this personality. Because the personality is the result of the systems and customs that this jitta has been born within. The systems and customs that many of you were brought into in this world as you grew up, they have shaped your personality. I don't see your personality is them, but your, your personality has been moulded and shaped by them. You know? And mine's been shaped, moulded by a similar but not the same um, set of systems and customs. That's my personality. Yeah. Mm. So these, these are then obviously two parts of the same thing. The uncertainty aspect of the feta, of these these three, is the sense in which uh, I don't really understand this. So I'm trying to make this thing, this personality, find the right system to fit into so that it will get liberated or something like that. And which is the right one. The right system, the right belief, the right religion, the right ideology that will make this personality, you know, comfortable and happy. And there isn't one. So, try and find another one. Yeah. So we just keep looking in the wrong place for where there could be real freedom. It's not going to arrive on the personal realm really you know we can have things we have to put up with things you know it's not going to arrive on that on that level now but the uh, uh, completely untrained or undeveloped person is still kind of expecting it to 
you know, expecting to, uh, that this is going to make this nation or this identity or this belief is going to make me feel happy and this is the right one. And this is where, of course, all the big conflicts occur. Uh, and so it's an orientation around the wrong aspect. Mm. Now the stream enterer is someone who has seen, realized, touched into another source of uh, orientation called Dhamma. And so because and that's steadier, better, less conflicting, more useful. And so they've begun to abandon the other ones. <laughs> and they've developed that. So this is someone who's, who's shifted over and entered what's called the stream of Dhamma. And it's, so it's said that if, if one has reoriented to this, this Dhamma stream, then, you know, in the Buddhist thing about this, the Buddha says, well, then at least set a maximum seven lifetimes, and then you'll be completely free maximum. He says, but you could do it in one. Yeah. He says, I recommend you do. Because, you know, it's seven lifetimes, it's still a hell of a slog. <laughs> 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 you know, you have to put up with loss, death, separation, bereavement. <laughs> you another seven, li- seven, seven goes around this one. <laughs> you want more? <laughs> so, uh, you know, he recommended if you get that, then really, you know, get into that stream and keep giving everything you, you can to it. Then it's going to deepen. So this level of of, um, uh, of freedom or liberation is really to do with views, uh, uh, personality, and, and particularly views. So one of the primary, what's called asava, or outflows, that stops... The only one that stops stream entry is the asava of views, views and opinions. It means you don't really have a fixed view or opinion. You know, just, you know you're not ideologically fixated. Because you see, the thinking mind cannot encompass reality, truth. So what's the point of trying to create something that will? It can't do it. It's bigger than this. So one begins to be less fascinated by views. Mm. And this is a strengthening and a deepening. Mm. So, uh, I think this is really important to, to get a sense of this. That it's said that those three fetters all snap at the same time. They all break at the same time. So clearly three aspects of the same thing. This is this per- what we are, what we call ourself. What we call ourself, which is generally our personality, uh, is a result of formative tendencies within a socio-cultural sphere that have generated this particular set of behaviours. Some of it we resist this. We don't, you know, it's not that we agree with it all, but we've all been shaped by those currents. You know, and so we hold it carefully. Certainly personality is be held carefully because you can do a lot of karma with personality. 
you hold it carefully and you see this is just a relative thing that we have to hold everybody has to have a face so we just hold it clean and clear and try to you know get it to, to behave in an appropriate uh, respectful and careful way and that you can't ask for it to be fantastically beautiful Now, as the stream moves on, then it, it, it begins, the next set of fetters is the, essentially the, the, uh, those which concern, first of all, um, pleasure and pain at the kind of physical and psychological level. Physical and psychological level. You know, we get angry, we get irritated, we get depressed. Mm. Yeah. We get excited, really exuberant, we get a bit you know, carried away. And then these, uh, we tend to identify with our moods. The moods, our pleasures and pains, our moods really are important. And we want to try to stay in the positive mood. Mm. Seems reasonable. <laughs> it doesn't happen though. But if we don't, you know, if we don't see anything, if we don't penetrate any deeper than that in terms of our, of what we experience, then those moods are indeed are very, very important and significant. And we definitely get quite reactive to the effects of displeasure and pleasure. And there's no way we cannot do that, we can't get past that unless we touch into something deeper than that. It's the same principle. If you go deeper into that, you're finding something that doesn't really matter about how praise and blame and, and being liked and disliked doesn't matter so much doesn't really rock you because you found something else. And this is really refers to deeper places of things like samadhi, where you're feeling, and, and self-respect and, and uh, really holding your dhamma and feeling, you know, they don't like me, she doesn't like me, but I am truthful, I am worthy. You know, it's unfortunate she doesn't like me. That's her thing. Okay, but I feel there is some worth and value and depth here. So it doesn't knock you around. So one who has passed past that gate is said to be um, past the place of once return. So then you just the the rest of it is to do with the uh, the non-returner and the arahant. And maybe it's getting a bit theoretical at that point. <laughs> mm. But uh, the essential, once you, get, once you understand the, the mechanism is always this cling, which at first we barely notice, we just are it. And then we notice, hey, I'm really attached to that. There's a clinging to it, or it really grabs me. It's not just that I cling, but there is a grab and a, a rocked and a loss of balance. Yeah. 
You know, that's that's that. That's the cling bit, and it's it's associated to what's called the aggregates. Perception rocks us. Feeling rocks us. You know, mm. states of mind knock us around. Mm. Mm. And so these qualities of things like patience and equanimity means, you know, a sense of digging deeper, and so the you don't get so rocked. And insight and medit- calm and meditation, so you come into areas where that's, you know, you've got the strength and you've got the resources to, 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 to not be stuck at this level. But the mechanism, once you begin to understand that there is a mechanism and it's, it's not rock solid, it's possible to to release clinging a little bit, a little bit less, because because it, you, you've witnessed it and you've seen it and you understood it and you know the way of releasing. And then it's just a matter of doing that time and time and time and time and time and time again, so you wear out the tendencies to do that. And uh, this is the Buddha said, you know, this famous sutta where he describes all the different levels that you can experience, you know, from levels of jhana and absorption and and way out levels like non uh, uh, sphere of nothingness, a sphere of boundless space, sphere of infinite consciousness, uh, very refined states. And he's talked to Ananda and he says, if you want to cling to anything, you can best to cling to one of those. He says, but the freedom from all clinging, this is the deathless. So it's just that. And um, for this release, you don't have to get to these very fine immaterial spheres. You can do it at a much more accessible level of, of, um, of uh, mind. So you know, we just humbly, humbly as our life comes up and our things come up and our meditation comes up, we just contemplate that mechanism, you know, rather than wondering whether you're a non-returner yet or how long it's going to take. That is not going to do it. <laughs> you know, you just feel what you're gripped by, the feeling of despair or empathetic or useless, that perception. Cl- don't cling to it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, don't go, go and get phased by these ideas about oneself, about where you are or not. That's all you can do. You know, so that's your focus. Um, to to recognise, to be honest about where one's grabbed, and then you've got some sense of the energy desperately holding. And is it possible to soften and release that? And that, that the you know, and that really, you know, liberation itself cannot be clung to because it's the end of clinging. You don't get a liberation. You just stop. You know, degree to which nothing can be is clung to. So someone has said. Uh, 
Yeah, I don't want to go too much into the technicalities of that, but I think I've covered that. Mm. Yeah, so, oh well. Is there a problem with identifying with awareness? Well, identifying is one another way of expressing clinging. It means we we that this mechanism, as it closes, the closure experience is called an identity. Uh, identity is not a name. The sense of identification is that ah, that's me, and that that mechanism. That experience is a mechanism of clinging. So we might, obviously, you know, if this is my bottle, then somebody takes away, hey, it's my bottle. You can recognize there's a cling there, isn't there? Rather than it's just a piece of something. Um, so that's, I didn't, so then it's also this body, we look at this body and we get so, you know, and I look, <laughs> it's me. Uh, and then there's a, this mechanism gets self-conscious about it, or this talking or this voice mechanism gets does that around it. So when we bear this in mind, and then it's just the, just the voice, just the body, just the thought, just this. Um, and the more though those, that becomes true, then one is beginning to recognize these very potent sources of clinging. Yeah of identification, of self-consciousness, of, of uh, you know, paranoia or feeling inadequate because of something or the other, you know, isn't what it should be. Very painful stuff. That can be released. This is definitely the way to go. And I hope, you know, some of what we've been te- practicing, teaching, considering, has helped, it is helping and will continue to help you in that way. I really do want that to happen as fully as possible. This is why I come here. Um. Okay, a little afterthought. After the relational field groups have happened, would you be willing to share about your experience? Well, if it means actually while they were happening, um, while they were happening, I don't want to go into my whole history with this process, but while it, while I was sitting in the, f- in, the, in the sessions that I was in, yeah, I felt sitting there and some sense first of all a bit of concern worry that would be all right you know listen I, I just widen and open my awareness to try to fill the whole room both the sense of like quality of just you know sensitivity to the moods energies I can pick up around and sensitivity that just the quality of holding it and calming it and listening to it can't always I'm not picking up the particular details of the voices but I'm picking up emotional energies and, and turbulences and I'm sitting there picking up that in all directions as best I can and, and trying to retain this you know. 
And so it's a little bit of a stretch. Mm. And uh, meanwhile, my, my own head is doing some funny things. This is mostly happening here. And I think there's a couple of days I was did that. I was a little bit tired, so my head was felt kind of like a bit of a headache, a throbbing head, sitting on top of this thing that was doing that. <laughs> but then I was, it was either like, uh, and the nice thing was I didn't feel left out, which sometimes I can do. I can feel like whoever's having a nice time and I'm sitting here, nobody's talking to me. <laughs> I didn't feel that. It's like being in a nature, you know, like when you're in a national park, you know, and you're with well, deer over there, and yeah. the you know, little birds are over there in the pond, and, there's, and it's just nice, you know, everybody's grooving along, uh, lovely, mudita. Yeah. Particularly as we come to the closure, and people seem to have, have benefited as a lot of mudita comes through. That's my experience. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. Uh, and so you you feed me in that way, mm. you know. You, do, you feed me. Mm. Uh, and this makes many things worthwhile. You know, the traveling and the journeying and the the jet lag and all that, and then you, you actually get a sense of, oh, you know, somebody's you know, getting it, and you see the, the happiness when they enter new territory, you see a bit of distress fall away, and you feel, oh, that's what I want. Mm-hmm. You know, and you, may, you think it's worth it, because you feel the resonance of, of jitta, when jitta uh, momentarily, or you know, release it a little bit and you feel it here. And you think that's, that's, you feel the resonance of that. And you, everybody's degree of liberation resonates here. And I feel that. So that's, that's part of the privilege. Uh, okay.